Hi, it's Brian Baumler here from HGTV's Renovation Island. I built Baumler Approved to help you connect with quality companies in your area. If you're looking to move or improve, we can help. If you're a company looking to grow your business, we can help you too. Visit beapproved.ca today. Welcome to the I Make a Living podcast brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. I'm your host, Demona Hoffman, and I'm one of you. An entrepreneur who comes from a long line of people who sacrificed for me to be where I am today. There's a John Adams quote that I always look to that reminds me of that privilege of having family who sacrificed so much so that I could live free. Essentially, it says, I study war so that my sons may study the trade so that their sons can study the arts. The family tree of my guest today followed a similar trajectory, and he has learned so much from his dad that still serves him today. Brian Baumler is a Gemini award-winning host and contractor who's been educating and entertaining viewers on his hit TV shows like House of Brian, Disaster DIY, and Leave It to Brian. Our U.S. audience would know him from his HGTV shows, Renovation Island and Renovation Inc. Brian has now built the Baumler brand to include Baumler Construction, Baumler Approved, Baumler Productions, Baumler Media, and the newly launched Baumler Family Foundation for Kids. Here's Brian on how he has made it to this awesome stage in his career. I would say from blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> is, uh, you know, janitor is my official title at the Baumler Group of Companies. But yeah, we have quite a diverse <laughs> revenue stream. So yeah, it's bleeding, sweating, and crying. Well, let's dive into that diverse revenue stream, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners, we have a big audience in Canada, and many of them know you from all of your HGTV Canada shows there. But also now you've crossed over to US HGTV and you had one of the biggest launches in HGTV season for Renovation Island. So now our American audience is also familiar with your television work. And I know people are looking at it going, but what is he really doing? Does he really do construction? Is he really running this this island? And yeah. is he really running this resort? Tell us the real scoop. I'd have to go back a few years. When I was 14, I opened a handyman company with a friend of mine at our summer lake house. And, um, you know, we started moving garbage out for contractors. Eventually they said, here, carry this lumber. And, and then it was measure that piece and then cut that piece and bang this nail in. So, you know, fast forward years later, we had done all of our framing apprenticeship hours with these companies. And how detailed do you want this? And how long do you have? <laughs> as long as you've got. I know you're a busy man. All right. <laughs> you know what? The palm trees are all standing today. So I we've got everybody in place. When it comes to the shows and seeing what we do on the shows, I'm not on the tools as much as I used to be when I started out. Obviously, now we have crews in place and teams in place. We're very, very hands-on as far as management. Whenever I can, especially when the film crew isn't around, those are my favorite days when I can just strap a tool belt on. And I'm on the tools and I'm cleaning up garbage, I'm framing, I'm doing finish work or tile installation, whatever it might be. So physically, I'm in there. I'm, I'm actually doing it. And I think that's always been important to me. You know, way back when, when I was on the tools every day and, and working away, there's a long, sordid story of how I ended up in the trades, first of all, and then how I ended up on television. But it was always really important to me no matter how big our production side grew or how big that entire world of digital or media or anything grew, 
that we maintain our roots, that when I can, I get back on site, I get the tools on, and I, I work alongside the guys. We've never asked anyone to do anything that you know I wouldn't do myself. And uh, I think that's really important in that we're actually doing this stuff. We actually bought a hotel. We're actually renovating the hotel. We're humping garbage out of the way. We're putting things back together with our crew of people. I think it's really important being in media to maintain that. I mean, look at me. I'm not a, a model. I'm not a very good actor. Uh, we just kind of do what we do. We film it. We cut out the boring stuff. Well, TV aside, and I can see now where you got your janitor experience to have that illustrious mm-hmm. title now, but the TV portion aside, you really have built a business as a contractor. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners can relate to that experience of building it and having to do everything, Brian. Like you were saying, you're cutting, you're hauling trash, you're interfacing with clients. And people would always ask me before, when I was actually a TV executive, they would say, well, how do I get your job? (laughs) And I'd say, Hmm. well, you want to do your job really well. You learn all of those pieces from having the hands-on experience. Yeah, I think any successful entrepreneur, when you talk to them about how they got started, you know, we all knocked on doors and dropped off flyers and we did the accounting at night and we did the sales on the weekends. And, you know, we actually did the work from 5 a.m. to midnight in between. You know, we've all swept up. We've all cut the wood, carried the wood, banged the nail in, you know, metaphorically speaking. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. You don't just walk into a job and all of a sudden you're a senior vice president. You know, you have to dig the ditch to understand how the ditch is dug and how to manage the crews and the people that are doing that work for sure. Let's talk about that process of management because now as your brand has grown, I'm sure it becomes harder and harder to manage the process. And you're putting your name on a lot of projects. You're also putting your name on other people's work through Baumler Approved. How do you maintain quality control when you are giving someone an endorsement? And then how do you also within your own company and organization, make sure that things are still done to your standards, even if you're not there on the hammers and nails themselves? That's the hundred million dollar question. It's interesting because as soon as I started, it was myself. And as soon as I hired that first employee, you are endorsing someone with your name to do work on your behalf. Now, that's scalable, whether it's one employee, two employees, 10 employees, or 1,000 or or 10,000 members of, you know, Baumler Approved or whatever it may be. It's all scalable. And at the end of the day, owner-operator is the only way where you are accountable personally and physically, you are in control of absolutely everything that happens. But as you scale and grow a business, that's impossible to do. You can't do everything. And as you grow the business, you want to identify people that are actually better at certain parts of that business than you are. That's part of owning the business and hire those people and bring them in to manage that portion of the business. Now, when it comes to Baumler Approved and other contractors, we have a very intense vetting process I mean, we monitor them through communications with customers multiple times a year. We make sure that their insurance licenses are updated in our systems as well to make sure everything is on board. And they have a code of conduct that is essentially how we run our own business and how we operate that they must adhere to to remain as a part of that club. Again, with anything, there's there's going to be an issue. You go to a, a fast food restaurant that, you know, 99 times out of 100, you're going to get a decent burger. And that one time you're going to find a, a hair or a mouse or a fly or something in it. You have to be active and proactive and reactive at the same time to deal with those issues and maintain your brand and show people that nobody is perfect. 
And when there is an issue, real perfection is dealing with that issue, taking ownership of the problem and fixing it so that your brand integrity is still together. Yeah. The thing is with that one aberration, that one mistake, that's the one that they will tweet at you and they will shout from the rooftops and they'll give the bad review and all of that. How do you handle that, Brian? You're so out in the public eye and your work is extended into so many different arenas. How do you handle that Mm. when you get that criticism? Well, I think, uh, you know, number one, we try and head it off at the past before we receive that criticism. But uh, that doesn't always happen. I, I was actually on a flight to Australia years ago, and the guy sitting beside me, we were chatting, and he found out I was in construction, and he spent three hours telling me how terrible his contractor was. I mean, he wanted this guy to fall in the ocean. You know, he, he spent all this time. And I thought, you know, it's funny. No one's ever found out I was in construction and sat me down and said, you know, I had the best experience in the world. If you do everything perfectly, you're lucky if your client tells one person. But if you screw it up, they will tell as many people as will listen. So you have to be, obviously, like I said, very proactive in managing that brand. You have to be very reactive. If we see a negative post on social media, if we see a negative, you know, the first thing I'm going to do as the face of the brand is pick up the phone or or send an email and speak to that person and say, whoa, hey, what happened? Let's fix this. And most people are open to that process. And they say, this is great. You know, you're admitting that there's a mistake. We need to fix it. Let's get it fixed. You know, we respect that. The internet these days with social media and, you know, everybody has a, an opinion that they feel very strongly and entitled to share. And, you know, unfortunately, not everybody is open to restitution. They just want something to complain and yell about. So there are times when that happens. And it, it hurts me emotionally, to be honest, because at the end of the day, what we want to do is provide the best service we can to take care of people and run a successful business by delivering a good product. We don't want anyone to get that bad burger. And if they do, we want to give them a good one and a second one to apologize for the mistake. So when people aren't open to to taking that repair or allowing us to kind of fix things, that it does hurt me emotionally. It keeps me up at night. You know, I appreciate you sharing that because I think that's the side that a lot of people do not get to hear when they see you on television and they think, everything is perfect. He has this beautiful (laughs) resort on an island. He has this beautiful wife that he works with. Everything is perfect. But I imagine it's not always perfect. And you do run into some challenges. And I think, uh, honestly, I think it's a very brave thing to also collaborate with your wife. Mm. What are some of the challenges that come up when you are working together on a project? And how do you handle that when you have a personal relationship with your collaborator. It's not just like, let's fight it out and get it over with. You have to really deal with that because then you have to still come home to the same house together. When you work with your spouse, you know, if there's a real issue in that working relationship, you know, it's like firing an employee that has a book of dirt on you. You just can't do it. (laughs) You know, they've got too much. You really have to try and move into things like that slowly. Now, a lot of people are seeing Island of Brian, the first show, but I mean, we've, we've done uh, seven different series, I think over 20 seasons and over 550 episodes of television. And Sarah has been involved in most of them, you know, a lot of them in the earlier years behind the scenes, still working with the company. Um, and we really had to sit down and, and lay out the rules of engagement. Uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to have disagreements on certain things. And, and I think that's our process to get to the product that we want to deliver. 
if it's all me, it's going to be built really well, but it's not going to look great. If it's all Sarah, you know, it's going to look incredible. It's going to be expensive, but it's not going to be built very well. <laughs> so we need that process, that fight of, of, I don't want to say good and evil. I'll say good and good. We need that process to get through to the end that really balances each other out. But as far as the rules of engagement go, we had to decide, you know, at the end of the day, when we go home, we can't put our heads on the pillow and still be mad uh, about something that happened at work. We have to put that aside. We have to take time away from work to reconnect as a married couple and realize that, you know, when we're in the ring, the gloves are on. When we're out of the ring, you know, we're husband and wife, we're mom and dad. We have to separate that somewhere. It's not easy. It doesn't always work, but uh, we have to try. Well, that's inspiring to hear. And it seems like this idea of learning from family and working with family has been a part of your history for a long time. I heard that you learned a lot of the tricks of the trade from your father. I did. He was an aircraft engineer. Tell us a little bit about that and the entry point into this work that you do. Yeah, I I grew up with a blue-collar dad. He owned a small sheet metal shop at the airport in Toronto. And, uh, you know, they did structural repairs to private military and commercial airplanes. He had a a shop full of tools and a hangar. it It was a really cool place to hang out. So, you know, to me growing up, my toys were tools and machinery and and welders and, and grinders and other things. So that was a lot of fun for us. We'd go to work with him on weekends and he'd hand me a magnet and throw me in behind the big metal shear and say, separate the aluminum and the, the steel. And, you know, we'd play with the welder and build things tangible. And the interesting part was I grew up watching my dad get up at five or five thirty in the morning and have his coffee and disappear and come home, you know, sometimes after dinner, sometimes at dinner and work a lot of weekends. And those sacrifices that he put in he managed to send my brothers and I to private school. So we went to school wearing a a suit and tie with a little horse on our shirt. And my dad was at the shop in a shop coat, cutting and grinding aluminum and working away. And my mom ran the business and the books for the company. So the the joke at at school, ironically, you know, sitting in a private school with a suit and tie on, the the unspoken joke is if you screw up in here, you're going to end up out there working with the maintenance guys. And, you know, I could never really quantify that or qualify in my head because I wanted to work with the maintenance guys. This is how I grew up on the tools. And, and there was always that stigma around the trades, but when it came time, you know, to sit down with a guidance counselor and he said, Brian, what do you want to do with your life? I, I looking at myself wearing a suit and tie and I said, well, I, I want to have a nice car and my dad's lawyer has a nice car. So I should, I should be a lawyer. And that kind of guided me into doing a degree in political science and and taking business and then taking a year off and prepping for law school. While at the same time, I was finishing up my apprenticeship hours as a framing carpenter and working in construction. It was like a light bulb went off one day and I said, I can't, I can't sit in an office and shuffle paper. I, I, you know, I love being on site. I love building things. I love doing tangible work. So I went back to George Brown college in Toronto and I took the part nine building code update courses and renovation technology and that was it. I, I said, I'm going to buy a big, beautiful pickup truck and a beautiful trailer and borrow as much money as I can to buy all the tools that I need. I put my name down the side of my truck, Baumler Quality Construction, the name of my first company. And my dad's company was Baumler Quality Sheet Metal. And he was a German guy, you know, escaped from Germany after the, you know, as a, as a young boy and made it to America and California and, you know, eventually up into Canada and came with his later hosen on a ship with his quarter and, and the bag. It was uphill and snowing. You know the whole story we get from our parents. Right. And a very frugal guy. So 
when he came over to the house with my mom and he saw my brand new pickup truck with the leather seats and the sound system and the, you know, the shiny wheels, the big trailer, he pointed at the truck and, you know, I thought he was going to give me a lecture about, you know, spending money before you've made it. But he said, do you see that? And I said, yeah, it's a, it's a brand new truck and a trailer. And you know, it's, it's all about image, dad. You got to sell, you got to, you know, you need the image to sell. And he said, no, that's my name. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> You're a part of a legacy. <laughs> yeah. And I said, okay, I get it. But my mom piped in right away and she said, and keep your nose clean. And what she meant by that, apart from literally keep your nose clean, you know, metaphorically, she meant show up when you say you'll be there, do what you said you'll do, cash the check, pay your taxes, and then do it again tomorrow. And Mm. you cannot fail in business or entrepreneurship if you continually show up when you say you will, do what you say you'll do, cash the check, pay your taxes. You never have to look over your shoulder. You never have to apologize profusely. You never have to hide from anyone. And you just have to manage that business along with trying to keep your, your name and your brand clean. So those were very important lessons from mom and dad kind of going out into that entrepreneurial world officially, you know, on my own. Those are such important words for entrepreneurs to remember, you know, and especially this idea of keeping your nose clean, as your mom said it. Mm. When you're an entrepreneur, you can't just phone it in. It's not like you're punching a clock and you're just like, well, I'm just here shuffling papers. Like you said, you have to show up. There's somebody that you have to provide service to in some way, you know, clients, customers, brands that you're working with, you're in some way being of service and well, and your paycheck's not just coming. Nobody's dropping your paycheck off. Nobody is auto depositing for you. If you hide in the break room and sleep all day, there's no paycheck coming. You have to go out and get it. It's not going to come to you. Right. And this entrepreneurial myth that like, oh, like <laughs> everybody thinks, well, I'll just get a resort on an island and I'll have this yeah. luxurious lifestyle. You're not kicking back. Just before we got on this uh, call, you said you were up in a tree <laughs> actually doing doing the work. I was up in a tree. Yes. Yeah, I was up in the bucket lift just clearing some coconuts so we don't kill any guests with uh, falling coconuts. Because as a <laughs> side fact, Falling coconuts kill five times as many people every year as shark attacks. So What? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. We got all the facts down here. Good to know that Brian has all the facts and all his bases covered. Oh, this conversation has me daydreaming about that beautiful beachfront resort in the Bahamas. I don't know about you, but I sure could use a getaway right now. If you haven't seen the beauty of Cerulemar on Renovation Island... Let me tell you, it's literally picture perfect. Like untouched nature, sit along the oceanfront, get immersed in the local culture, and let your worries go kind of perfect. It's Brian's personal sanctuary, and he wants to share it with you and your family. Or you and your partner. Or maybe just you. (laughs) I'm going to check my calendar to see when I can make my escape to Cerulemar. Come and meet me there. You can visit cerulamar.com to make your escape too. We'll put the link in the show notes. Now, back to Brian. See, and that's what's important about the work that you're doing. You know all of the risks, you know all of the benefits, and that's also from being hands-on. And you're responsible for all those things as an entrepreneur. 
You can't just be like, oh, the other guy, it's the other guy's coconuts. <laughs> you have to be responsible. I do think, you know, I've, I've heard people talk about, ah, oh, this guy thinks he knows everything or, or what have you. And the truth is, if you, you know, the day you think you know everything is probably the day you have the most to learn. If there's something I want to do, you know, not only will I read every book I can on it, speak to everyone that's in that business, watch every YouTube video, research every page on the web, do as much research and learn everything as I can, then you have to take all of that information, put it into a blender and put it through a common sense filter and decide which information is the best information for you. You know, whether you're tiling a bathroom or running a business, there's a hundred ways to do it properly, but there's millions of ways to screw it up. So you have to take all that information and filter it, put some common sense and decide what's going to work for you, what makes the most sense for you. And you have to put all that into application. If the entrepreneurs we've spoken to this season haven't left you with this impression already, I'll say it again. Preparation is so important. This theme keeps coming up this season because in times of crisis, especially, success hinges on having the knowledge and experience in place to keep your business afloat. Brian spent years training under more experienced tradesmen and taking on various educational opportunities that ultimately led him to become the successful entrepreneur he is today. This kind of training takes discipline and trust. There's a lot of young kids that I talk to, you know, that want to get into their own business. They want their own construction company. They're 21 years old. They want to go buy the truck. And I said, you know what? I opened my first real company that 14, you know, maybe that was a, a side business, uh, the handyman thing. But when I went into business for my own, you know, I had spent years allowing someone else to pay me while I learned some valuable lessons and made some expensive mistakes. And I tell them the same thing, do that, put some time in, work for me for 10 years and, and then go do your thing. I'll help you because it's great to see people do that and get after it. But you really need to choose the right time as well, because jumping too early isn't always the best course of action. That's a really tricky thing to figure out for an entrepreneur. And even hearing in your story, Brian, that you came from a completely different path. You thought you were going to be a lawyer mm. and then suddenly you made that pivot. I imagine a lot of people listening could be at that pivot point. How do you really know that it's time to make that leap? Well, I think especially now with the past crazy year we've had 2020 the worst year in history to open a hotel by the way yeah we actually officially reopened two days ago so we wow. we have guests here at the moment so that's nice the bonfire of cash is burning slightly less today which is nice but yeah the, doing that pivot i think a lot of people especially now in COVID, are thinking about it and we we got a lot of feedback from the show and before we came down to the island people saying how can you just pick your family up and risk everything and move to an island to a completely different country to try a business completely different, you know, what if it fails? It burns down. What if the locals don't want you there? What if, what if, what if? And my response to that is, you know, we've always been a family that loves to take the path less travel. We want to go to an island that's almost uninhabited and, and meet the people that live there and sit at their table and share stories with them and experience the local culture. And my answer to the people that say, well, what if it goes sideways is, what if I spend the next 30 years getting up in the morning and doing the exact same thing every day, and then I wake up one day and I feel a chest pain and I'm dead? The end result, the net result between now and that moment, no matter what I do, is the same. Uh, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate reality, but, you know, eventually 
the earth will fall into the sun. Eventually, we're all like, none of us are getting out of this alive. So between now and then, if there's something you want to do, if there's something you want to risk, the worst case possible scenario is that you start over. Mm-hmm. And that's not terrible. The life is an adventure. Life is a journey. You have to risk it. You have to put the time in uh, and do the things you want to do and do them now because five minutes from now, we may not be here. You know, 30, 40 years and, and a nice comfy retirement with a pension check isn't guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly not guaranteed anymore. So if there's something you want to do, do your research and risk it and do it. And the worst thing that can happen is you'll have an incredible adventure and, uh, and you'll have to start over. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for those inspiring words. I know a lot of people needed to hear it. And I remember being at that pivot point myself and just saying, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going Mm. to do this. And you don't know unless you try. But I know there are other people listening who are going through, like you said, you started a hotel at the worst possible time. And Mm. hindsight, hindsight. I know, but I don't want to brush this under the rug, Brian, because it's real that a lot of people began businesses at the beginning of this pandemic without knowing this was coming or maybe at this point where something that they worked so hard to build for so many years is now mm-hmm. on the brink of collapse. How do you make it through? How do you keep going when you like, especially in this situation, you don't even know, you probably didn't know when you could reopen for a long time. Yeah, there was, uh, I mean, we opened, we had our grand opening on February 1st and we had our grand closure uh, March 10th. So we had five or six weeks in business to watch the uptick and watch all the bookings disappear and everybody ask for refunds, which was difficult. One thing I think that we're, I don't want to say lucky because we've built these things and put them in place, but you know, we have a bit of a safety net because we've diversified our revenue streams over the years and we have different buckets, if you want to call them, you know, people talk about buckets different revenue streams diversify. So we, we do have a bit of a safety net. That being said, we don't have enough of a safety net to indefinitely run and operate and maintain a private hotel for our family. So there, there is a limit to it. And there are hundreds and uh, millions and millions of people. Uh, restaurant owners are a great one. There are so many small mom and pop restaurants that have just started. There's so many stories you're hearing where they're, they're going out of business and you know they're highly leveraged or what have you. And it is terrible. I mean, the, the world has been shut down. The economy is ground to a halt in some sectors, and it's difficult. And you have to be prepared to pivot. We have, you know, when we open the hotel here, the first thing I do when I look into getting into a new business, not only is do the business plan and look at how great it could be, because everybody wants to see, look how many millions of dollars we could make on this business. But I always have my plan B and my plan C. What if we don't make millions of dollars? What if the storm does hit? What if people don't show up? what do we do then? And for the hotel specifically, we have our length of time that we're comfortable trying to maintain and and operate and keep this place open for guests to arrive. But once we get to that pivot point where the hole in the boat is getting too big for the pump, so to speak, our plan B is maybe fractional ownership, maybe selling some of the villas for people that want to get away and just trying to recoup and recover as much of the funds that we've invested into this as we can and still remain with a viable business when we come out the other side of this thing, which I wish I had a crystal ball, but uh, I don't. I I wish I had one too. If I had it, I would see myself in one of those villas in Sarulamar (laughs) one day. Well, we're ready for you. One day. We're ready for you anytime. 
Entrepreneurship is all about big leaps of faith in yourself, but it's always important to have a safety net for yourself in case something unexpected happens. Finance experts have recommended a diversified portfolio and savings for a long time, but it also applies to entrepreneurs when we're looking at sources of income. Prepare a plan B, a plan C, and have an exit strategy in mind well before you're ready to take it. I've so loved this interview and everything that you've shared just about your entire journey, Brian. Before you go, we always like to end with a piece of advice. Can you tell me the last or best piece of advice that you either gave or received? You know, my dad talked to me a lot. And I think the best advice he gave me is that at the end of the day, no matter what happens, the people that will survive, the people that will be successful are the fishermen and the farmers. You have to learn how to fish and you have to learn to be a farmer. And what he means by that is everybody's had someone in their life that comes up and says, wow, must be nice. You're so lucky. Look at you sitting on a beach at a hotel. Uh, They're the same people that go fishing with you and they throw two or three casts and they say, there's no fish here. I'm going home. And then at the end of, you know, 12 hours later, when you come home with a boat full of fish, they say, wow, must be nice. You're lucky. But the difference between those two types of people is the fisherman is out there casting every inch of every shoreline for 12, 18 hours, 24 hours, a full week, months, whatever it takes to fill that boat with fish. And if you want to eat fish for dinner, you have to fish. And, you know, on the farming side, a lot of younger people are handed a bag of seeds when they finish university or they move out of their home. Their parents hand them a bag of seeds, a bag of cash, a loan, their education, whatever it may be, and they send them out into the world. And you can sit down and say, great, I got a bag of seeds. I'm going to eat these things. They were tasty. And your bag of seeds, gone. That's it. You know, it it doesn't exist anymore. But the farmer will take those seeds and he'll get up at five o'clock every morning and he'll walk out into the mud and he'll plant those things. And he'll go hungry for nine months while he plants them and waters them and pulls the weeds and fertilizes them and takes care of them. And he waits and waits and waits. And all of a sudden, you know, after all that sacrifice and all that time and all those empty dinner tables and no meals and sacrificing, he's got a massive harvest. And now he has a new bag of seeds, but he's got a whole truckload of seeds and he's got that harvest. So the best piece of advice I could give to any entrepreneur, if you want to be successful, if you want to survive, if you want to be happy, is learn to fish and learn to farm. Those are the two types of people that will survive and thrive through anything uh, because you'll just keep going and you're willing to make that sacrifice to wait for the right time to eat that bag of seeds. Your dad's perspective is so awesome. And I can see (laughs) through you how much of an impact all of those little nuggets of wisdom have made. Thank you so much for being here and, and sharing a little piece of him with us too. Well, thanks very much for having me. It was fun. As we're coming to the other side of the most stressful American election cycle the world has ever seen, I'll stick with the presidential quotes. Thomas Jefferson said, I find that the harder I work, the more luck I seem to have. Since I was 17, I have never been without a job or an entrepreneurial venture. And I've seen this play out time and time again. When you build your own momentum, nothing, not even a global pandemic or political upheaval can zap your potential. Here are a few more takeaways from today's conversation with Brian. Don't let your what if stop you from pursuing your life's calling. The worst case scenario is that you start over. Make sure the money is right before you take a big leap. Diversify your revenue stream ASAP. 
Your parents and your mentors are a treasure trove of vast life experience that will guide you through your entrepreneurial journey. If you could use a getaway, make sure that you make a reservation at the Baumler Resort, Sarulamar, and say hi to Brian for me. Or if you're still in the lockdown like I am, check out the reruns of Renovation Island. Are you a contractor or looking for a contractor? Baumler Approved is in Canada and the United States. You can check them out at baumlerapproved.ca. We'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast was brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. FreshBooks is proud to be an official partner of the Baumler Approved brand. And we have so many tools to save you time so you can keep doing what makes you money. Check out the exclusive offer for our podcast listeners at freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. Our associate producer is Leo Shell Villanueva. Our producer and director is Paco Erzmendi. And I'm your host and producer, Demona Hoffman. Let's connect. I'm on all the socials at Demona Hoffman. Or you can find out more about my relationship coaching business at DemonaHoffman.com. And listen to your parents because it's your business. See you next week.